All right, everybody, John on here with you. It is July 25th, Monday, 2022. This is a very special broadcast. This is one of the ones that have been projects, right? So this is my third broadcast of a project size over the last two weeks, and then we can finally start getting into regularly scheduled programming, covering games and doing all of that stuff. So this is something I usually do once a year. I got all the notes in front of me, and I think it's a perfect time to go ahead and do it. So we're going to talk about all four major pro sports teams in Detroit. We're going to start with the Lions, then work our way to the Pistons, the Red Wings, and the Tigers. Now some of these things I'll probably be a little bit more passionate about than others because there's going to be certain organizations that are not in the same spot that they should be, and there's ones that are actually making some progress that need some notes. And so for some clarification here, in terms of everything else that I cover usually on Colorcast or wherever else on YouTube, Facebook, the NFL is probably one of my last coverages because I'm not as knowledgeable about it. a lot of the other stuff as compared to the Red Wings or the Tigers or the Pistons and things like that. NFL is pretty much the only thing I don't cover. But if you look around what's going on between Dan Campbell and Brad Holmes, you would have to say this. Think about the record last year with 313-1, right? And you'd say that the Lions are in the permanent rebuild since the 1950s plus. That's the old joke that's been going on around here. But there are some things that are starting to change, even for the ones that even always drink the Kool-Aid. Because you know the guy with the Lions van that's always in here in Michigan. He's still always at all the games, which I don't know why, but... Things are starting to change because of Dan Campbell and, more importantly, Brad Holmes. Because let's go through this. In the 2021 draft, the NFL draft for the Lions, seven draft picks were taken by Brad Holmes. All of them played. All of them played for the Lions. That isn't something that you can always talk about when you're talking about the Matt Patricia or the Matt Millen era. Anybody with Matt on that side of it, especially uh, Fatty Matty Patty and then... Uh, all the stuff with Matt Millen, I mean, you want to go ahead and give Matt Millen all of his uh, credits and credentials for drafting Calvin Johnson when your dog or cat could have done the same damn thing. So you really can't do that. So, But let's start with Brad Holmes here. So Penny Sewell, uh, round one, pick seven, the 21-year-old, just allowed just five sacks in his last game of the season against Seattle. He didn't allow pressure in 41 snaps. So Levi Ozurike, the defensive tackle, he was round two, pick 41. So this is a 2021 pick, so I'm going over. Defensive tackle, Lane McNeil, uh, round three, pick 72. And then Anifu Manawifu, round three, pick 101. Sorry about that name. <laughs> Played because some of the injuries to Jeff Okuda. And again, Jeff Okuda was one of those ones that was supposed to be taken by Matt Patricia. And he was supposed to be one of those top picks. Because they couldn't get Young, they couldn't get Chase Young, they settled for Okuda, and that didn't work out too well. So, toward the end of it, it was Amon Ra St. Brown, round four, pick 112. In the last six games, he went on over 100 yards twice and caught at least eight passes. He was thrust in the top end receiving duties, again, because he was not only good, but it was one of those situations that you talked about. There isn't anybody to catch the damn football for the Detroit Lions. So put him in that spot. And Amon Ross St. Brown probably is one of the best late picks the Lions have had in a long time. The uh, linebacker Derek Barnes, round four, pick 113. He allowed not 19 completions for 305 yards and two touchdowns on 22 targets in 2021. It's a sign of needed improvement, but Campbell and company wanted to bring him along slowly as he continued to learn the position. But his injuries once again 
necessitated a speedy introduction, and then Jamar Jefferson, the running back in round seven, picked 257. He got two touchdowns. He's beyond DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams. So, where does that leave the Lions in 2022 in the recent NFL draft? Well, it was Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan, and then Jamison Williams again. The Lions moved up in the first round to get Jamison Williams. Yes, he has some injury concerns coming out of Alabama, but that speed, that breakneck ability speed for Jamison Williams gives them another receiving threat along with Amon Ross St. Brown that they probably, probably feel pretty comfortable with. Safety Kirby Joseph out of Illinois, tight end James Mitchell out of Virginia Tech, Malcolm Rodriguez, the linebacker out of Oklahoma State, the Cowboys, James Houston out of Jackson State, the linebacker, and Chase Lucas out of Arizona State, the corner. And those were the picks by Brad Holmes. So when you combine all those ones that you talk about with Sewell, Azurike, Amon Ross St. Brown, Derek Barnes, Aiden Hutchinson, Jamison Williams, Kirby Joseph, James Mitchell, Malcolm Rodriguez, James Houston, and Chase Lucas, and combines with the others, all the guys played last year. And if all the guys play this year, in terms of all those picks, boy, that shows a stark contrast for the Detroit Lions for a long, long time, regardless of their record. Look, I understand that they went 3-13-1. I know everybody over here sips the Kool-Aid as far as the Lions and everything else is concerned. You can't always can continue to do that. But you have to be able to say where there is improvements and where things have gotten better, and that's the ability to be able to put guys on the field from your draft and show that you're actually able to make the decisions to make your team better by actually getting prospects that play on the field. What a novel concept, building through the draft, but that hasn't something that, that hasn't been something that's always happened here, and you have to take that and acknowledge it from where it comes from. So let's lead into this. So with the Lions record again last year, 3-13-1, and, and now them going into the primary division on the radio aspect, they're going to be on 97-1 the ticket this year. They're actually going to be on FM radio, which is a novel concept too. Your NFL team is actually going to be on NFL radio, not AM, 760 or 1270 on the Detroit side. <laughs> so it's going to get a little bit different. So the product of what's different in the NFL is this. If your record sucks you're going to play against teams that suck. And the majority of it for the Lions is that case. And let's go through this really quickly. So we're going to go through the 18 games, and I'm not going to go ahead and give you thereabouts of who's going to win what and there and there, but let's just mark them as they go. So week one is going to open. Lions start with two home games to open. The Eagles at 9-8 and eight out of the NFC East. They claim the wild card. And the Commanders, the formerly Washington football team, were 7-10 and 10 in the NFC East, or the NFC Least, that was headed by the Cowboys there. So, Eagles, technically above 500, 9-8, Commanders 7-10. Then the Lions go on the road to face their division foes in the Minnesota Vikings at 8-9 in the NFC North. And then the Seahawks at 7-10. In week five, it's the Patriots, 10-7, and seven, the AFC East wild card because the Bills finished above them, and then week six is the early bye. So when you think about it, within the first six weeks, the Patriots are really one of your only teams that are going to be above 500 unless you want to count the Eagles there at 9-8. and eight. But this is going to be the toughest stretch for the Lions this year. So with week five being the Patriots and week six being the bye, week seven is at Dallas playing the Cowboys, 12-5 in the NFC East. I imagine that's going to be a tough matchup there. Week eight against the Dolphins there with Tua Tagovailoa, AFC East, and then week nine against the Packers. 
13 and 4 again your division foes in the NFC North that won the division because Aaron Rodgers is going to make his return because let's face it he's not really going anywhere why would you want to go anywhere considering how good the Packers are and that's just to get out of jail free card going right into the playoffs when you're playing against everyone else in the division in the North so in between let's start with it again the Patriots at week 5 you got the bye week in week 6 so Patriots Cowboys Dolphins Packers between 5 and 9 that's probably your toughest stretch into the entire year. And then you go back into the Charmin soft tissue paper schedule. Week 10, Bears, 6 and 11, your division rivals in the NFC North. And then the Giants, going back to the NFC East, 4 and 13. The Bills, again, that's a very tough matchup in Week 12, 11 and 6, no doubt about it, in the AFC East. It's the Jaguars in the AFC South at 3 and 14. Then back to the Vikings, 8 and 9 again, as we mentioned. Then the Jets, 4 and 13. At Panthers, 5 and 12. Again against the Bears, 6 and 11, as we said. And then you finish out with the Packers, when that's going to be a TBD as far as time, because that's not scheduled yet for Week 18. 13 and 4 were the Packers. So that schedule does not sound difficult. And again, that is a product of the way that you finish throughout the year. And because the Lions were 3-13-1, and really the only other team that had a worse record than the Lions were the Jaguars at 3-14, and there you go. The Lions' schedule is not too bad. So make, mis make no mistake about it, as we said, between all the picks and everything else that are going on, Brad Holmes, I think, is actually starting to do some good things here. Because you have to acknowledge it from where it comes. If all the guys that you draft actually play and make it on the field and suit up and provide an impact then you're actually doing something a lot better than what we've expected all the way through the 1950s. Hopefully the eras of Matt Millen and Matt Patricia are gone, and Brad Holmes can continue to do some of the good things that have been started to be brought about. Again, as we've talked about, weeks 5 through 9 with a bye mixed in at 6, those are probably the most difficult because it's Patriots, bye, Cowboys, Dolphins, Packers. That's probably going to be your most difficult part of your schedule. And let's say this. So as we talk about a 313 and one record, with this schedule the way that it is, and we talked about it, you got like nine teams that are below 500 throughout this whole entire schedule. So it's 10 of the 17 games. 10 of the 17 games will be against teams under 500. So because of that, and again the previous record at 313 and one, I would expect this Lions team to at least go seven and ten because their schedule is softer than Sherman tissue paper. Again, this doesn't this doesn't mean I don't like where the team is headed, but I also understand that not only the SOL narrative that always has to be squashed and killed, again, I think that's starting to be alleviated a little bit. We don't have to always go through those same old excuses with the Lions. But if they're getting a few extra wins here, you have to at least throw it out like this. How much of that is a product of the schedule and how many people you did not play? And that's probably what's going to be talked about this year. So people could be understandably excited about an extra four or five wins here, but don't go ahead and just drink that uh, Honolulu Blue Kool-Aid here for all that stuff because there is a lot of work left to do for the Lions, but even I can acknowledge Things are starting to turn around, and they're not the worst-run organization in all of Detroit pro sports. So I want to just throw that out there. So the Lions happen to compete for a good division standing. I would mention that because of the schedule. And they're really the only other team in the threat in the North are the Packers. 
at 13-4 last year, where you're probably going to go 0-2 against. Maybe you can get a split if they don't care toward the end of the year when it's already locked up. So those are my thoughts on the Lions. What are yours? Facebook.com slash John Ryan Ott. Same thing for Twitter. On ColorCast right now, on YouTube side of things. So that's some of the stuff on the Lions. Let's uh, transgress here. Let's acquiesce to the Detroit Pistons. So, I have a few things that I want to hit with on the Pistons. And we're going to start with a little bit of a draft grade by me. And then talk about some of the other thoughts and everything else that are going around. Because I think that this is relatively important. So, Let's zoom in this window a little bit, and then we'll go across, just in case I have to watch the YouTube side of things. So in 2020, Troy Weaver able to start to make his landmark on this team. And where are they headed, and what are they going to be doing? Well, because of all the stuff that was going on with Stan Van Gundy and toward the end of it with Joe Dumars, again, when you're cutting the snake off the head and you're trying to kill everything in the Pistons, that's pretty much trading Chauncey Billups to the Denver Nuggets for Allen Iverson. But though it's way back in the way back machine, right? But the Josh Smith, Brandon Jennings, some of the other things like that is not so far in the Wayback Machine. And Blake Griffin and Derrick Rose is not so far in the Wayback Machine. So there is a lot of mess for Troy Waver to be able to clean up as far as the Pistons were concerned. But it started in 2020, and it started with four draft picks and three first-rounders here. So Killian Hayes, I gave him a C-minus grade so far. He can play the point guard or the shooting guard. He was round one pick number seven. He's still 21 years of age. He's got a $5.8 million cap hit. Yes, he's got some ability to play defense and has some good size at six foot five. But can he continue to break through as a starter? Will he be a solid bench piece? Where is the ceiling on Killian Hayes? He played 66 games last year. He started in 40 games and averages per game. It was seven points per Three rebounds, four and a half assists, one steal, and two turnovers there for Killian Hayes. That's why I gave him a C minus. There's no doubt about the fact that Killian Hayes can play some defense. And now when you pair him with, let's say, Cade Cunningham, maybe even Killian Hayes comes off the bench and he's able to not have to play against some of the best of the best starters in the NBA, he continued to get some more show for his game. And make no mistake about it, I can use the same excuse for a lot of these guys in terms of COVID or coming over from France or things like that for Killian Hayes where you're able to miss some training camp and then be able to get thrusted right in. That's not the easiest prospect in the world. So while a lot of people are very upset about the progression or lack thereof, from Killian Hayes, again, I have to just reiterate this point to everybody again that he's just 21 years of age. The cap hit's not large, again, because you got a lot of the rookie deals. Again, maybe in a couple of years you have some things to think about. But a 6'5 guard that can run the floor and play some defense, man, if you can just fine-tune some of that offense ability, Killian Hayes might turn into be something that is really, really good. So I put him at the C-minus spot right now, with room to improve for sure, but I really don't want to flush everything the down the toilet as far as Killian Hayes is concerned because I still think he's got some bona fide ability. Now, this is where I get a little bit harsh. So, Isaiah Stewart, he was round one pick 16. He was one of those guys I was absolutely shocked that Troy Weaver took. I gave Isaiah the grade of a D, and I'm going to tell you why. 
The 21 years of age, power forward slash center, he is a tad undersized. And again, being undersized is fine if you're Ben Wallace and you're like a three-time defensive player of the year and you can shut down Shaquille O'Neal for as much as you could as possible and win the 2004 title. But 6'8", 250, he's got some weight. He doesn't have a lot of uh, height. But Isaiah Stewart is not one of those guys that can play too much defense. Yes, he can get some rebounds, but he's kind of like an undersized Jason Maxeel and not as good. So a $3.4 million cap hit, again, maybe some people might think I'm being too harsh, but I really believe this needs to be a big year for Isaiah Stewart. So, so far he's good for about 8 points, 8 rebounds a game in one block. Yes, he had some flashes in the year prior, going into 2021, that he could shoot a little bit. And being undersized, it would definitely help his game if he was able to continue to do all that. But some of the stuff that we saw last year, it kind of seemed like his jump shot took a little bit of aggression, looked a little bit broken last year. And I still wonder how this changes as far as where he's going to be in the rotation as the team continues to develop. Because let's make no mistake about it. I thought Marvin Bagley was an excellent piece to get, and that's a little bit uh, fast-forwarding here as far as our talks. But when you're getting somebody like that, where does that place Isaiah Stewart? When you're getting somebody like Jalen Duran, where does that place Isaiah Stewart? He's one of those guys that quickly, if his game doesn't develop, I feel like he's going to fall out of the rotation to be nothing more than a bench player. So... I truly believe that D-grade is exactly where he is right now. He's on the fringe of being somebody that could even be in the starting lineup. And look, for prosperity purposes, when we're starting the 2022-2023 season, you can think about it like this. You can think about it in the sense of being a rookie needing some time. Yes, he's still going to get some starting lineup time, but that's only going to give you a leash that's going to last so far. Those fortunes will change quickly, and if Isaiah Stewart doesn't continue to improve on his game, even though he is undersized, he can't change that, but if he doesn't continue to improve on his game, he could find himself on a fast track to somewhere where he doesn't want to be, or maybe change locales entirely, being on a different team. But those are just my thoughts. So Sadiq Bey, the small forward, power forward, center combination, can kind of do it all. Round one, pick 19, 23 years of age, 6'7", 215. I gave him a B-plus grade. Some people might think that that's a little too harsh for Sadiq Bey and should be a little higher. The $2.9 million cap hit. So he might be inconsistent at times, Sadiq Bey. But what seems to be routine is right now he is a 20 points per game score. He has had several sing, uh, single-digit games in a row and then he can go ahead and explode for 51 points. So the inconsistency of having some of those rough games where he'll get a 7, a 9, a 6-point outing, and they'll get 51, but then sometimes mix it in for 20, I think he can be a little bit inconsistent at times. But I really do have to say this. I think Troy Weaver got this one right. I think he could be a cornerstone franchise piece. If you can squash some of those inconsistencies on the offense, this kid's a flat-out sniper, and I do believe he could be the first cornerstone piece for the squad. I think he can improve on his defense a little bit, and he can squash some inconsistencies, because right now, in the 2020 season, 16 points per 5 rebounds, 3 assists, 36% 3-point shooter. Again, that's going to need to improve, and improved a little bit in his rookie year, 
regressed a little bit in the sophomore season here for Sadiq Bey. But make no mistake about it, when you saw the 51-point game against the Orlando Magic, you look about it and you say, hmm, this might be something for the Pistons to work with. And this is one of those ones in the 2020 draft in between Killian Hayes, Isaiah Stewart, and Saban Lee, who we'll get to in a moment, that Sadiq Bey was the best piece at pick 19 in round number one. You would think some of these other teams would like a do-over, considering the way that it is. And Saban Lee rounded it out round two, pick 38, because again, in the NBA draft, you only have two rounds, 23 years of age. 6'2 guard, 183 pounds, is a good depth guard. About 5.5 points per 2 rebounds, 3 assists. I gave Saban Lee a grade of inconclusive at this point because, quite frankly, I just want to see him get some more minutes in the rotation. Is he going to be more of a bench depth guard? Is he going to make more bench time? Is he going to get some uh, starting time now that Frank Jackson is officially out? Where is Saban Lee going to be in the rotation? I think he might be towards that 10, 11, 12 mark, maybe even the 13, 14 mark on the depth of the bench. But that's not bad to have because when Saban Lee has the time to be able to play, he can show out to be able to get you some points, gives you some defense, and play pretty hard. He's just an undersized guard that probably won't get as much time because you need to have time for Cade, obviously, but Cade, or Killian Hayes especially, to be able to develop and continue to move all of that stuff around. So, let's progress here into the most recent, going into the draft, and then the most recent of draft, and the ones that we've had. So I gave you some of the grades for the 2020, now let's go into last year's one with Cade Cunningham. So, this is pretty simple, round one, pick number one, the Pistons won the lottery, and they won Cade Cunningham, the point guard, shooting guard combination. I'm going to go ahead, whether or not you think this is the easy button, I'm going to go give Cade Cunningham, the rookie of the year, an A-plus grade. So he's got a $10 million cap, and again, that will continue to rise as the seasons go along, but it's not going to reach anything worth of the rookie contract between $14 and $15 million. And that is an absolute steal for the player that you're getting. So the Oklahoma State star... Had an inauspicious start again because, remember, he struggled out the gate. But, my goodness, did, did he definitely shoot up the charts. His attitude, his work ethic, his star power, it all stood out. And it's shown out very, very well. In his rookie season, he averaged 17.5 points per game, 5.5 rebounds, 5.5 assists, a steal, and a block. He was already a solid free throw shooter in the 80 percentile. He's going to continue to work on his three-pointer, but man, his mid-range game for Cade Cunningham is already lethal. If you're talking about somebody like DeMar, Rosen, DeMar DeRozan, who was the most lethal in the entire league, Cade Cunningham is not there yet. But it's one of those situations where, as the season had gone along, when you're thinking about Cade Cunningham and you're thinking about some of those other things already, and you saw him progress more toward you know, from the outside into the inside. It wasn't one of those ones where those that throw stones say, man, he's not really working on his three-point shooting as much. Is he not comfortable? No. It's one of those situations where he's already known that he can hit those three-pointers and he wants to go in and work on that mid-range and show you how lethal of a scorer he can be. And Cade Cunningham has already done that. So the fact that he continues to work on something that is a lost art in the NBA, which is the mid-range game, if you're bringing back the 80s and the 90s game, I love it. Cade Cunningham is working on that stuff. And listen, he's already had great command of the offense as he was learning as he went throughout the season to go ahead and pick his spots. Because let's face it, going into last season, 
the Pistons are thinking about it because he averaged 23 points per game in March. When he actually gets some talent around him, he's going to get even better. I mean, he had so many fucking pylons around him at the time. And again, it's the truth. There's so many guys around him that couldn't play. When you actually put some guys around him that can shoot other than Sadiq Bey, his assist totals will go up. His points per game will go up. His efficiency will go up even more. So as Troy Weaver continues to put the screws and change around that roster, you're really going to be able to find something in Cade Cunningham where you already know he's a diamond. It's not a diamond in the rough. He's already a diamond right now. And he's going to continue to improve. And that's only going to continue to get better as the talent around him gets better. So Cade Cunningham, to me, I believe is completely deserving of that A-plus grade. And you know, in between all the stuff that was going on with Jalen Green, I definitely think you dodged a bullet. You got the high-character guy on top of the guy that was already a complete player and dominant. Cade Cunningham was a slam dunk number one, and the Pistons knocked that one out of the park. Yes, you can say they got lucky to get the number one pick, but when you get that pick, you got to be able to hit on it. Because, again, if you want to go back into the Wayback Machine, when LeBron James was the number one pick in 2004, who did the Pistons take at number two? They took Darko Milicic. They passed on Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. So don't tell me there, there was no room for a mistake when you can definitely make a mistake. They didn't make one on Cade Cunningham, and they got that one right. So I'm going to give an inclusive grade on this next one here for Isaiah Livers. But I will say this, his potential is probably in the B to B- minus range. I already like what I've seen from Isaiah Livers, the small forward, power forward combo. He was round two, pick 42. Again, I think Isaiah Livers probably could have gone a little bit higher, the U of M product. He's got a $1.5 million cap hit, just 23 years of age. But he was a guy that came into the season injured. And that's why he fell so far. But this Michigan product can definitely hit an outside shot. And he's got some size. Six foot six, two hundred and thirty-two pounds for Mr. Isaiah Livers. Six points per game, three rebounds, one assist, one steal. Yes, he battled some injuries early. He played in nineteen games. He started in five of them. He's definitely going to be on this team. He's definitely a piece right now that Troy Weaver and the rest of the team really love. To be honest with you, and I believe that he's going to be able to find some rotation time. Whether or not he can crack his way into the starting rotation is not something I'm willing to project, project as of yet. But I can definitely say this. He's definitely going to be a solid bench piece that can play some defense. He's got some size, and he can definitely already hit an outside shot at a good clip. So Isaiah Livers, with the six foot six size of 232 pounds, maybe will hit an outside shot and play some defense. He's going to be on the squad. It's going to be up to him whether or not he can make the progression to get into the starting lineup. And again, that may change depending on how Troy Weaver continues to round out this roster. So Luca Garza, I gave him an incomplete grade as well. He was round two, pick number 52. And as you know, if you flash forward here, Luca Garza is no longer on the team. 23 years of age, 6'10", 243 pounds, Probably can play some power forward. That's probably where he's going to be at most. Some center. Got six points per three rebounds. He really couldn't crack the rotation. And I don't think Dwayne Casey maybe maybe gave him as much of a burn as I would have liked to have seen in all honesty. 
but at the same time you can't continue to have a plus minus of above minus 20 or going in the wrong direction on that side. I do feel like the fans had loved his work ethic because he continued to cut down on the weight and I think he's going to be able to find a spot with another team. In fact, I'm pretty sure that he will. Luca Garza is going to have to continue to put in the work to be able to cut down the weight and work on his skill set and all that stuff. And I'm not saying that to be a, a jackass. I'm saying in the, in the sense of everybody knows about when you look at me on the side of it, I got cerebral palsy. I can't do much of anything right now. If it wasn't for parents and things like that, I'd be living on the street. So it's not one of those things to knock on Luca Garza. But it's one of those things that he knows exactly what he has to work on. But I believe because of his extraordinary work ethic, he's going to be able to crack a rotation. He's going to be a viable NBA player. It'll be up to him whether or not he can crack that starting spot. But I don't deny the fact that as hard as Luca Garza works, he's going to be able to get to that point. So we go through the trade deadline spot when we go to Marvin Bagley here as we're still in the 2021 spot. Now, some people might think I'm a little bit too high on this grade, but I'm going to go ahead and say this to you in all honesty. I believe Marvin Bagley III, already coming over from Detroit here, from Sacramento to Detroit, the par forward center product at 6'11", 235, was an A grade for the Pistons. And I'm going to tell you why. He was the 2018 round one pick number two. Again, it was Trey Young. Marvin Bagley and Luka Doncic as Dallas was able to move all the way up to three and snag Luka in 2018. But again, Marvin Bagley was pick number two. So this guy is just 23 years of age. The poll product was to get him re-signed. Would Troy Weaver go out of his way to make sure that he got a good enough deal and about 3-33, and 3-35, and 35, somewhere thereabouts, Marvin Bagley's here. And he's signed, and I think he's signed for a very excellent term. And he can still continue to prove himself and make all those right adjustments. Look, I mean, he already averaged 14-7 and seven in the 18 games here since coming over from the Sacramento Kings. He's going to be a solid piece. And to me, because I give the acquisition an A, I also go through and look at it like this, folks. This means that Isaiah Stewart... Or Kelly Olynyk again, because Kelly Olynyk's contract's expiring now, coming into this 2022-2023 season. It's over after this year. But this definitely means that Stewart and Olynyk may be on their way out. Because if Marvin Bagley continues to play that he way that they shown going in there from the Kings, he's already going to be in the starting rotation. And if you go all the way in forecasts in the future, you could have Bagley and Durin at the power forward and center spot, and boy, you got some size, you got some defense, you got some athleticism, and that changes the world for Detroit. So to be able to get Marvin Bagley signed on a great term for several years, that was a slam dunk trade for Troy Weaver to get Marvin Bagley. So much upside, I still think he's going to continue to prove his game, and I absolutely love getting Marvin Bagley at the deadline. So, Cade Cunningham, the number one pick in 2021, getting Marvin Bagley at the deadline. Again, it was Isaiah Livers and Luca Garza. You only had two second-round picks there at the end after Cade. There wasn't a lot of room to maneuver after doing the three firsts in 2020. Luca Garza is the only one that's officially out. I think Isaiah, Isaiah Livers still in that bench rotation. Cade Cunningham is the star that you've wanted that's going to continue to improve. And Marvin Bagley will hopefully continue to do that work 
and uh, improve upon that A grade that I've already given them. Again, some people might think that it's a little bit auspicious as far as we're even projecting, but I'm saying even now he's in A grade with the 14 and 7, the ability to be able to run the floor, block some shots, and do a little bit of everything. Marvin Bagley's exceptional, and to be able to get him at that term, I really like it. So here was the thing for me. So everybody wondered going into this draft, the 2022 NBA draft, would the Pistons once again win the lottery? Would they be able to get somebody like Jabari Smith? Where would this happen? Were they going to get stuck with Keegan Murray? Again, he was one of those products that I saw a lot in the Big Ten. And he could score some points, but maybe that wasn't the upside pick that everybody wanted. Well, because the Sacramento Kings had the fourth pick in the draft, they took Keegan Murray. All of a sudden, Jaden Ivey is still on the board. I know there's a lot of stupid comparisons out there. You always throw those NBA comparisons and say, boy, he's similar to LeBron, or he's similar to Carmelo, or he's similar to Kevin Durant. They always want to go ahead when you're watching the NBA draft and put those big names in there to get you to tune your eyeballs and change your earwaves to go ahead and lock on the TV and you know, fall over the drool that everyone wants to put out there. And Jay Billis is as guilty as any when it comes to any of that stuff. So even I had to laugh when he said Jaden Ivey could be very similar to Ja Morant. Dude, if he turned into Ja Morant as the Pistons got Jaden Ivey, the 6'4 guard, the 195 pounds at pick five with Cade Cunningham, then, oh boy, uh, there's going to be some trouble in the backcourt here for some opposing teams. So the Pistons... Get Jaden Ivey. What we do know about Jaden Ivey already, he's got some superb speed, superb speed and athleticism. He's got lots of local connections. Again, as his dad is a former coach, uh, his mom also paid for Detroit Country Day, the same high school that Chris Weber went to. Lots of basketball connections and wants to be here. He was one of those guys that cried because he was so damn happy to be in the city of Detroit. And again, maybe it's one of those things you want to cry because you want to get away from the city of Detroit. But no, it didn't look like that in terms of this Jaden Ivey. This was one of those ones and one of those times where Detroit again was able to luck out. The lottery ball didn't fall to them. They fell to five. They still were able to get Jaden Ivey. And I think things look pretty good. So... Look, it's unfair to say, and again, maybe I can table this for the future outlook, but it's unfair to say that one man alongside Cade Cunningham, because again, let's think about it as we've just gone through the summer league and some of this other stuff. Jaden Ivey has got a lot of work to do, but Jaden Ivey also has one thing in his back pocket like Cade Cunningham does. I will say this, and I believe you guys will be right about this because I see a lot of this in the comments section or wherever else you want to talk about it. Jaden Ivey could be one of those ones that could definitely win Rookie of the Year. It could be back-to-back -back Rookie of the Years in Detroit coming from Cade Cunningham and now Ivey. I definitely believe that to be possible. But what it is going forward, we're going to table that here for just a couple minutes. So, Pistons, they made the move. They traded Jeremy Grant for a first-round pick as he went to the Portland Trailblazers. And look, that helps out Damian Lillard as he signed another two years. You get Jeremy Grant out there now. Again, C.J. McCollum has been moved to the Pelicans, as we know, because he's going to go ahead and play with Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson, right? 
So because of that, and the pick was three years from now, Troy Rivers said, fuck that. We're going to go ahead and get another player. And he did just that. It was Jalen Duran, the power forward center combination at 6 foot 11, 250. Round one, pick 13. Again, he's another top tier talent. He can definitely run. He's got some superb athleticism, and he's a solid lob target. Look, do I know anything more about Jalen Duran other more any more than any of you do? No. But I can sit here and tell you this from what we already know. He can run. He's a solid lob threat. Look, we've seen a lot of the times, again, as we talked about, I understand everybody wants to make fun of Chris Paul and not being able to win the big one. But my point is this. Even when you played with the uh, New Orleans Pelicans or Charlotte Hornets or any of those times of times and mixes as New Orleans and Charlotte was an influx while Chris Paul was there, who was the primary lob threat for Chris Paul? wasn't David West. It was Tyson Chandler. Do I see Jalen Duran being able to do something like that? You bet. I see him catching a lot of lobs, being able to run the floor and create some spots because Jaden Ivey and Cade Cunningham are going to be able to probe and break down that defense in terms of what could lead Jalen Duran to a lot of lobs at the rim and being a solid threat, especially at 6'11", 250. Boy, that is a solid target to be able to go ahead and throw lobs too. So we'll see if he can acquiesce and build any more offensive game. But as we know about Duran right now, being able to get some blocks and rim run and do all that, that looks pretty good. And when you're talking about a possible Durin and Bagley combination in that front court, man, some things are starting to change. So, this is one of those ones again, and forgive me for the name butchering pronouncement of Gabrielle Presida. This is the Italian prospect, the six foot. Uh, point guard, shooting guard, 180 pounds, point guard, shooting guard combination, again, 20 years of age, played professionally over the last three years. He's a good guard to stash in Italy, as far as what we're all aware of, and that's all we know right now. But six foot seven, 180, my goodness, you gotta love that size in terms of that in the front court. And we'll see if Proceda can definitely make some strides, and we'll see how long he's going to be stashed in the Italian leagues before he can eventually make his way, hopefully, overseas. So as we talked about, Weaver traded Jeremy Grant to Portland to get another pick in the first round. It turned out to be Duran. So you have Duran and Bagley, as I said, possibly in that front court. You have Ivy and Cunningham in the back court. Bay maybe at small forward? Who knows? This team will still likely be drafting in the top ten in the 2023 NBA Draft. And that's where I say you need to table some of your expectations here for the Detroit Pistons. But I definitely believe they have some promise now. Look, we know that Kemba Walker, he's going to be moved eventually, or maybe they hang on to that entire cap hit because you can go ahead and get some proceeds and prospects. And now with the Nerlens Noel move and Alec Burks to Pistons, again, some of that stuff also has to be re-signed as the Pistons need to go ahead and uh, make that deal. And essentially what happens is the something-for-nothing trade, as we talk about when we did the hockey show here with uh, Cooper Hopkins, the something-for-nothing trade for the Vegas Golden Knights. It was a something-for-nothing trade here for the Pistons and the New York Knicks to get Nerlens Noel, Alec Burks, and two second-rounders and $6 million in cap space to be able to sign some of these other guys, and they gave up essentially nothing. And the Pistons gave up essentially nothing because... Jalen Brunson and his father are now on the New York Knicks. 
So what are your expectations this season, and what are my expectations this season? As the Pistons continue to get their draft capital and cap space situation in the right prospects, much like the Detroit Red Wings, who we're going to be talking about going forward here. So the Pistons last year were 23-59. and The only team they were ahead of in the Eastern Conference was the Orlando Magic at 22-60. and So look, I'm going to make no bones about it. I think this is a predominantly young team still in the mix. And from a lot of the things that I've heard, and from a lot of the stuff that you see from some of these people on the message boards, or any of the things on Reddit, or some of the other fans, uh, some of the other beat writers that I know had covered some of this team that I still talk to and really much enjoy the company of, a lot of you guys were disappointed because you thought this team was going to be a lot better, and they weren't that good last year. But I was one of those ones on the other aspect of it. I said, you really thought this team was going to be good last year? I mean, I understand you had Cade Cunningham and Livers and some of these other pieces, but one man is not going to change the entire team. And yes, I do love, again, as I've said, the acquisition of one Marvin Bagley III, but you know this team is still definitely rebuilding. Now with Jaden Ivey and Jaden Duran and this Gabriel Procida that's still going to be drafted and uh, stashed in Italy as he's played professionally, 20 years of age, probably going to maybe come over in two or three years if you're lucky. So between Kemba Walker, uh, Nerlens Noel, and Burks, you're getting draft capital and assets. You still have to figure out between Zaire Smith, DeAndre Jordan, and they still got one other piece there as far as the cap penalties and holdouts that you are able to get more assets from that once all that stuff gets cleared up in the cap. So the Pistons might not be able to make too many moves. But the way that it's set up right now, with a lot of these guys on these rookie deals, because you're talking about uh, Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, Killian Hayes, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, Jalen Duran. All these guys are still on their rookie deals. This puts the Pistons in a situation where they're okay right now, and they don't have to go ahead and make a swing for somebody that costs them a lot of money when they really don't have the time and assets and range to do that right now. They're still working like the Red Wings are to be able to clean up that salary cap and get themselves into a positive spot. So what I believe the Pistons should continue to do is continue to keep it up, acquire assets, and do it right. I'm not fully expecting, as I said, as they finished 23-59 and 59 last year, I'm not fully expecting them to go ahead and go above the win total. And thankfully, when I looked at this and I saw it, this was courtesy of Woodward Sports, and I already was saying this number before Vegas came out of it. Their number was at over-under for Pistons wins going into the 2022-2023 season at 27 and a half. I had the Pistons right at 27 wins. I do think that there is going to be a little bit. What's going on, man? How are you doing? I do think that there is going to be a little bit of an improvement. But considering how young the team is going to be, I definitely think you need to table some of that and saying, you think this Pistons team can go ahead and be a play-in team? I don't. Do I believe that Jaden Ivey could possibly win Rookie of the Year back-to-back like Kate Cunningham? I do. I do think the Pistons will be able to make some strides. But if you're still asking me to go in between Cade Cunningham, Killian Hayes, Jaden Ivey in the backcourt, Marvin Bagley pretty much coming over from a 17-game span with a rookie Jalen Duren and Isaiah Stewart that really hasn't even found his way into the rotation, you're talking about a predominantly young team. 
So when I'm thinking about some of the things in the Eastern Conference, and hell, let's take it a step further. When I'm thinking about some of the things in the division, I think about it like this. Do you really believe the Pistons are still going to be in a better spot than the Milwaukee Bucks, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the Chicago Bulls? And between the Indiana Pacers and yourself, where yes, I believe the Pacers could finish in the basement of that central standing of there in the East, the rest of the three teams that we mentioned in between the Cavs, the Bucks, and the Bulls are all playoff teams. So to ask the Pistons to win more than 30 games, I think is a little bit of a Kool-Aid moment. Could they do it? Yeah, maybe they could crack 31 or 32, but I don't think much more than that. I had them at 27, the over-under is at 27.5. So that was before Vegas came out with that number, that's the number that I gave to you. And I think that's spot on. So if you want optimism this year, let's close it out with this. I do believe the Pistons could finish somewhere between the 28 and 54 range to 30 and 52 range. Maybe get 30 wins at most. Ivy could win Rookie of the Year. I think Troy Weaver has done an excellent job in cleaning up a mess of a team, as we've said, in between, if you want to go in the Wayback Machine, in between the Allen, Allen Iversons, Josh Smith, Brandon Jennings of the world, to now the recent Derrick Rose and Blake Griffins, there was a lot of damage done in that salary cap. And a lot of that stuff has changed. Yes, this Pistons team is still in the midst of a rebuild. But the dark ages are over. Yes, this team still has probably two or three more years before you go down the road and you say, let's compete for something tangible. But I can at least say there's light at the end of the tunnel. And when, once Troy Weaver and once this Pistons team finally get that turnstile and they turn that door, they turn that vault into some kind of contention, which might start into a play-in through a waxing of the first round in the playoffs and then continue to progress forward. This could be a Pistons team that can see a window opening to a likes of a 10 to 12 year sense of relevancy. You want to play that long game and that's what Troy Weaver and thankfully Tom Gorris has been smart enough to keep his hands off, unlike when it first was here from a few years ago with Stan Van Gundy, smart enough to let Troy Weaver to be able to do his job and turn the Pistons into something that's going to have some long-term success. It's not going to happen again next year. They're probably going to be closer to a top 10 pick, and maybe even a top 10 pick in 2024. But after going into the 2024-2025 season, projecting a couple of years from now, that is when I believe the window of contention will start to stay open for a decade or more. But what are your thoughts? Facebook.com slash John Ryan Ott. Also at Twitter at the same spot. And again, you have the link that this is going to be on with the Hopeless Sports Guy and all that stuff, Spotify and all of that. So we've gone through the Lions. We've gone through the Pistons. We've still got a couple more teams to talk about here as we want to go all the way through. And again, Autism Racing fan, man, I appreciate you checking in the broadcast. So, let's talk about the Red Wings. Again, if you joined me last week, we had a little bit of a free agency frenzy here with uh, one Mr. Cooper Hopkins. And again, I'm looking forward to working with him through October and all that stuff throughout the rest of it. Quickly becoming one of my very best friends and one of the best hockey minds in all of ColorCast and all the best sports minds in general. Just an all-around good dude. So... Let's talk about it in the sense of this. 
So between the Red Wings, we'll go through some of these acquisitions as we've talked about in that show. And then I'm going to go ahead and give you some of my thoughts. So Steve Eisman was very busy in terms of all the picks and all the moves that were made. So the Red Wings, they got the former goalie from the St. Louis Blues, Villa Huso, the 27 years of age for a third round pick in the 2022 draft for the Blues. He was then signed to a three years, $14.2 million contract, 4.75 cap hit, 40 games played, 25-7-6, and 9-19 save percentage, and two shutouts. The Red Wings signed Andrew Kopp, 28 years of age, 5 years, 28.13 million, a 5.63 cap hit this year, 72 games played, 21 goals, 32 assists, 53 points, a solid second liner that can play as some wing and play as some forward. Again, he played with Dylan Larkin at U of M. He needed depth down the middle. The Red Wings needed that badly. Yes, Kopp might have some concussion issues, but Eisman was very smart here in terms of, as I've always talked about, like this. If you want to be able to make some adjustments to your team and you want to be able to get the most out of it in a spot that you're willing to probably spend more money because it's just that goddamn important, you got to build down the middle. And Andrew Kopp is one of those guys right now that can win you some draws. He can score you some goals. He can pass. He can get some assists. He's got a good, solid 200-foot game. He's appropriated on defense. Andrew Kopp does all the things that the Red Wings need right now. When you're talking about Larkin Kopp right down the middle in your first two lines, you're automatically talking about a team that's going to be so much better down the middle when they needed centermen because the only other guy they had last year besides Dylan Larkin, was Michael Rasmussen. And Rasmussen's probably not ready to be at this point, to be a second-line center. That's when Andrew Cobb fits in. Look, you can say all you want about the terms of the five-year term was too long or $28.13 million was a little too much. This is one of those situations where I think you might split hairs of maybe a million and a half dollars or maybe a year too long. Because you might think as he gets closer to the 32, 33 years of age, he might fall to a third line center. Well, what do you think is going to happen to Dylan Larkin? Dylan Larkin's not going to be on the first line center the entire time. He might fall to a second line center at that point as you're trying to appropriate Marco Casper or some of these other guys down there that you only hope can be that good. So... Andrew Kopp, I think, is a very solid signing. I thought Eisman was very shrewd, and he knows exactly what he was doing there in the sense of what was needed to be improved down the middle, and that was one Andrew Kopp. What's going on, Mivs? How are you doing there, buddy? So, Oli Mata, again, probably a low-key signing, one year, $2.25 million, 66 game, played one gold, seven assists, eight points. He was one of those guys that Oli Mata... Again, he plays some really good defense. He was on a really good Kings team there when you want to throw him in there with Drew Doughty or uh, Anderson or any of these other, Dur Sean Dursey for the Kings. Some of these other guys that you want to throw in there that got a lot of time. Only Mata comes over to the Red Wings in a one-year proving ground deal, and he might turn out to be one of those guys that plays in the top line with more Sider. So if that's the case, that might look to be pretty good. If Ben Sherratt doesn't fill out on that spot, then there you go. Olimata might do that. So Ben Sherratt, this might have been one of those times I'm going to mention it to you like this. If there was one way that I wanted to go against Steve Eisenman, it might be Ben Sherratt in terms of, I think the four years was a little too long, and I think closer to the you know $20 million cap it was a little too much. Because when you think about it, and it's not just because the Florida Panthers got waxed by the Tampa Bay Lightning. 
I look at it like this. Well, Montreal was very happy to get rid of that cap hit, get a first-round pick for Ben Chirot. I'm not saying this guy couldn't staple gun somebody into the boards, but what I'm saying to you is for a guy that you're paying that much for a term for, for a guy that's already going to be in his middle 30s, and for a guy that you want to be able to put on a first line potentially because you're going to have to because he makes as much money, he doesn't have the same type of skating speed there with a Moritz Sider. Do you want to try to do the yin and yang prospect of it where one guy's going to be able to throw you some hits and one guy's going to be able to score you some goals? I, I could see that possibility, but Ben Schrott's going to have to show you a hell of a lot more than what he can show you recently. Again, and Cooper talked about this, and I think that he was exactly correct in terms of what was thought about Ben Chirot from a few years ago. He was one of those guys that was a little more high on in the sense of he could be a centerpiece there that you could put on a top line and not have to worry about so much. I don't know if I love that signing, but it's one of those situations too where I can also look at it and table it on the other side like this. If you lost Mark Stahl, that you know that Mark Stahl and Eric Stahl went to Florida to be able to reunite and try to kind of close out their careers there and try to play in some warm weather for a really good team in the Florida Panthers, you might bring in Ben Schrod to say you want some veteran leadership to be able to kind of get that calming influence in the locker room and let things lie where they may. I can see that point, but I would have loved to have seen that point in a little bit less of term and less of money. So Dominic Kubelik and David Perron. I'm going to tell you why I love these ones. Dominic Kubelik, two years, uh, $5 million, 2.5 per, 78 games played, 15 goals, 17 assists, 32 points. David Perron, 34 years of age, two years term, 9.5 million, 4.75 cap hit per, 67 games played, 27 goals, 30 assists, 57 points. So why I love these two, they can easily fit into a second or third line help the power play, and can easily be moved. So Dominic Kubelik, he was always having to be one of those guys in the Chicago Blackhawks. Look, we know everything is going to go be changing here because Alex DeBrinkett was moved on from. The only ones that are left now are Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taze from that dynasty that the Chicago Blackhawks turned into with the three cups there when you were going to the 2010s in between the LA Kings and the Chicago Blackhawks. We know these things are definitely going to change. But what was one thing that the Red Wings have struggled with so mightily? It was power play time. It was getting some secondary scoring. It was trying to find some help there for Lucas Raymond and Dylan Larkin and Tyler Bertuzzi and Jacob Verana. And Jacob Verana really couldn't help himself that much because he was a little bit injured. Look, I understand all of that, but Dominic Kubelik and David Perron are going to fit into that very, very easily. And because of that, because they're at two-year deals... If they're doing very well, it doesn't matter where the Red Wings are in the standings unless they'd be gunning for you know a second round, uh, actually winning a round, getting into a second round spot, which I don't believe that's going to be the case. But Dominic and Dominic Kubalik and David Perron, to my point, Eisman can go ahead and move those guys there for some more assets so they can go ahead and help your team now and then acquire more assets down the road. So there's a couple things I want to talk about here. Again, I can mention some of the thoughts of my cousin in terms of the Chicago Blackhawks opting for the complete entire rebuild, and that one I understand. But this is Eiserman's fourth year as the general manager of the Detroit Red Wings. And this is why I want to set this like this. 
if you watch some of the stuff on the NHL draft, and I know the NHL doesn't get the same prosperity level of numbers and eyeballs that I believe it should, because again, it's always a great product, but it's one of those ones where Emily Kaplan, when the Red Wings drafted Marco Casper, she's talking with Steve, and Emily Kaplan's asking a question about where she feels that this Red Wings team are. They said, look, they made some improvements in January. You're starting to get some key pieces. Yes, you have some contract talks and situations in between Dylan Larkin and Tyler Bertuzzi. Maybe some things you have to figure out going forward. But where do you think the Red Wings are headed into, you know, after year three of the rebuild going into year four? And Steve Eiserman, it wasn't it wasn't a smart ass comment. I thought it was just one of those ones that was very pro- plausible in terms of where the Red Wings are. It was one of those comments where he said, "Look, Emily, you're talking about all these nice things. You're talking about year four of a rebuild. Well, we're in year four of a rebuild. That's my answer. That's where they are right now, and that's clearly where Eiserman is. And when you're getting into that point, what's going on, Michael? How you doing, buddy? Uh, when you're getting into that point here for the Red Wings, and you're in year four of a rebuild, it's finally time, I believe, as Steve Eisman was working his way. Look, we can thank Ken Holland for his services here in Detroit for as much as you want to. I can totally understand that point. He was able to be dominant in the non-salary cap eras. And I talked about it in between the Red Wings prospects when we did the blood feud there between the Avalanche and the Red Wings. And Jim Devolano and acquiring Nicholas Lidstrom and uh, Sergei Fedorov and Slava Fetisov and a lot of these other pieces in the draft. Vladimir Konstantinov, getting Henrik Zitterberg, getting Pavel Datsu, getting all these other pieces. Boy, that led Ken Holland into an expedition in a situation to where this team was going to be a hell of a lot better off down the road. But when that all ended and Ken Holland entered that salary cap era, when that all ended, hey man, I appreciate it, no problem. Um, when that all ended, it went into a situation where Ken didn't put the pieces around Dylan Larkin. He didn't put the pieces around Zetterberg and Datsuk. And because of all of that stuff, it put them in a situation where the Red Wings were going for that streak for the 25 straight years of the playoff situation. And it let them down. There's only so many times you can put so many patch holes into the Titanic and expect not to sink. And a lot of that was because of the doing of Ken Holland. And you can talk about Mike Illich as much as you want. God rest his soul because, again, he had passed away and Chris Illich is now the general manager to the side of things. And look, there might have been some acquiescence and some truth in the sense of where you think these teams were going to be. And maybe those moves had to be made because of the pressure of the streak. That was something that we talked about ad nauseum for all of these teams down the road in Detroit and between the Tigers and the Red Wings respectively. And we're going to get to the Tigers here in a moment because we want to close out a few more Red Wings things. But my point being was this. They sold their souls for trying to continue in this playoff streak for this straight 25 straight years. Yes, that is an accomplishment, a fucking accomplishment in a sense and forthright. That is incredible. But you cannot continue to do all of these same things without acquiring some damage on the other side of it. And because of all of that, because of all the salary cap hell, because of you wanting to sign Jonathan Erickson and Justin Abnelkater to long-term deals, you put yourself in a situation where you're going to have to pay for it down the road. And that's exactly what the Red Wings did. And you know what Steve Eisenman did? 
It came into the point where, and this was the rumors here, and I don't know if this is the truth, but I want to just make note of this now because it's starting to piss me off. In the sense of what happened with Steve Eisenman, I heard after his playing days whether or not he was already ready to do this or not. He wanted to go into a straight GM role. Maybe it was a couple of years after as you would give Steve Eisenman some downtime. What I heard through the grapevine is that the Red Wings told him no. Go ahead and get some proving ground first, figure it out, and then we'll get back to you. Well, what did Steve do? He went over to Tampa and he said, you know what, screw this. Look, I know I have Steven Stamkos on the side of things. I know things are bleak with Martin San Louis at the time. And I know I need to trade a disgruntled superstar and get some assets. What did he do? He traded Martin San Louis for some assets. He drafted Nikita Kucherov. He drafted Andre Vasilevsky. He drafted Braden Point and Brandon Sorelli. He drafted uh, Victor Hedman. All of these other pieces that turned the Tampa Bay Lightning into a fucking dynasty. He drafted every single one of those players. And now what is he doing when everyone else is bitching about Steve Eisenman's fourth year and saying, how come the Red Wings aren't relevant yet? How come they're not doing what I want them to do? You got to understand, when Ken Holland left, he left in a mad dash and he left all the cupboards bare. And not only did he leave, he left to the two top five players in the entire world, number one and Connor McDavid. I would probably put Nathan McKinnon number two, and at worst, I would throw Leon Dreisaitl in a top five, although I'm being pretty unkind to Mr. Leon Dreisaitl. My point being is, Ken Holland left, he took all the cookies in the drawer, he emptied all the cupboards, and he left the two of the best players in the entire world as squirmy as he was. Again, I thank him for all of his previous accomplishments, but he definitely has shown he doesn't know how to run a team in a salary cap era. And that was the point of it. It left Eisenman in a situation where it was war at the end of it. If you want to talk about, and again, I hate to use this terminology of the stuff of 9-11 and the buildings burning, but that was a situation. It was the aftermath of everything that was left and the devastation of all of that. That what was that was what was left of the Red Wings organization. It was that bad. And Steve Eisman's now started to clean all that stuff up. And just now, going into year four, just now, able to put the product around them where they can actually get some pieces and actually make a team. So you have to understand, you might not like, because the Red Wings fans, again, I think they've gone more knowledgeable as we've gone down the road here. The days of trying to get all this stuff just to make the playoffs are over. We talked about it in the previous segment here with the Pistons. You've got to be able to make that last and go down the road. And Eisman's able to do that. Starting to get some players in there now. And look, you can talk about you wanted to be able to get more assets. Maybe move on from Dylan Lark and Jacob Verana and Tyler Bertuzzi because those contracts are going to be coming up. But you got to be able to put some pieces around there. you got Derek Lalonde, who has been one of the most successful coaches. Again, this is his first NHL gig. But as an assistant in Tampa Bay for the Toledo Walleye and some of the stuff in the minor leagues, all these other teams, some college teams, his resume is extensive, and it's very, very good. And I'll leave it like this. This is not going to be the same team this year. Again, if you think about it, the Red Wings were in contention all the way through January. This could put them with the moves that they made in between Chirot, 
Kopp, Ole Mata, Dominic Kubalik, and David Perron. This could take a team that was contention and through January, through all the stuff that you talk about with the misnomers of Jeff Blaschel being lost a little bit, this could be a team with all this addition and the new changes in that coaching staff and Derek Lalonde that was competitive even through January. Now with all these moves, they can be competitive through March and April and maybe get themselves to a point where this could be something very good. So let me take it a couple steps further here before we go to the next part of the section. So when we talk about it like this, I want to bring it to you like this. So what's going to be done with Larkin, Verana, and Bertuzzi? So the free agents list that we have right now, it's at Larkin, $6.1 million. So at 2023, $6.1 million for Dylan Larkin. Bertuzzi, 4.7 for 2023. That's a big-time concern. So Steve Eisenman has made the mention of this, and I want to talk about this going forward. Steve, uh, Dylan Larkin is going to be the guy that is going to be here for the long term. He's going to be the captain of the Red Wings. That's what Steve Eisenman wants. That's what he wholeheartedly wants. A lot of the fans out there are going to say this. Well, this product of Dylan Larkin, again, is not even at 25 years of age yet. They say that if his number goes above 9 or 10, they don't want Dylan Larkin to be here, and they want him out, and they want to be able to get as much draft capital as possible. Same thing for Tyler Bertuzzi. If he wants a number north of 8, they want him out as much as possible. Now, I can understand that a little bit in terms of Tyler Bertuzzi, and again, you might poo-poo the aspect of the COVID-19 masking policies or some of the stuff going on in Canada, but until it gets the old pokey, Tyler Bertuzzi is not going to be able to play in some of the stuff in the Canadian games. And being in the Eastern Conference now within the last several years that the Red Wings are, when you're playing against the Montreal Canadiens, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Ottawa Senators, that are in the Eastern Conference, it's going to be a lot of games where Tyler Bertuzzi can get a 12-15 to 15 game vacation because you're just not playing the teams in the division. And that could cause a lot of problems. So that might be one of the ones I could see being moved. And I could also see... If Jacob Verana is a little more healthy here at the $5.25 million cap hit through 2024, this could be one of those situations where I could see Bertuzzi and Verana more likely being moved than Dylan Larkin. Because Dylan Larkin is such a good centerman, because he's a guy that is solid, plays a good 200-foot game, and over the last few years already shown you the ability to pass, now he's definitely showing the ability and saying, you know what, fuck this. If no one else is going to be able to score, I'm going to go in and get the job done. He's showing you the ability to do that. Bill Narkin, I believe, is deserving of that C on his chest. And even if that number goes north of 8 into the 9 range, I think he's the guy that you got to be able to sign. I think Eisenman's going to be smart about that and get him signed. Do I see Bertuzzi and Verona maybe being moved? Bertuzzi's contract, again, is up after this year, the $4.7 million, and Verona, as we said, 5.25 in 2024. Yes, but between Bertuzzi and Verona, I think they'd be the more likely candidates. But this is where it gets a little more interesting. Pew Suter, $3.25 million, done after 2023, this year. Oscar Sundquist, $2.75, done after this year. Adam Ernie, $2.1, done after this year. Uh, Philip Sedina. As an RFA right now, is the Red Wings still have cap space? Do they sign Philip Sedina for a friendly term? Again, this is one of Ken Howland's last picks that are left. Do they sign him for a friendly term? Do they put him in a situation where, let's say, look, this is your last chance with all these other moves, Philip, to be on the second or third line. Prove yourself. Again, you're still a very young man, 22, 23 years of age. Prove yourself right now. Put yourself on a deal. 
put yourself on this top part of the line and figure out what you can do. I definitely think that that's something you can do. And if it wasn't for the big time moves that were made, and again, if Cooper Hopkins was on here with me, we can talk about some of this stuff for the last thing with Matthew Kachuk from the Florida Panthers. If it wasn't for some of those things, you would think maybe you could package Zadina, Verona, Bertuzzi for something like that very special, but maybe that's going to have to wait toward the trade deadline. Robbie Fabry's got a $4 million cap hit to 2025. Again, that's not going to go and count right now because he's currently on long-term IR. Let's take this a step further here for the defensive side of things. Philip Peronic, $4.4 million through 2024. So again, a couple more years, Philip Peronic's going to be out. Again, he's shown you some offensive abilities, but not so much defensive side of things. I think Peronic has always been on the expendable list. It is uh, Olimata, again, just this year, 2.25. Jordan Osterle, uh, just this year, $1.3 million. Gustav Lidstrom, 850000 in 2024. Mark Pizik, he's going to be on injured reserve right now, as we just saw today. The uh, 850000 2024, the 30-year-of-age uh, defensive veteran. And then Stephen Camper, who they signed, is another guy that they can throw in there as a defensive veteran. 750 k through 2024. And Jake Walden is, uh, is a restricted free agent. He's on IR at this point. And again, on your goaltending situation, again, Ville Huso signed at the $4.7 million $4.75 million cap hit, as we said, through 2025. So Ville is going to be here, and he's going to be your uh, steed. But Alex Sedelkovic is going to start the season on uh, IR. And he signed for a $3 million cap hit just through this season. So between Nedeljkovic, Hironik, Bertuzzi, Verana, Pew Suter, Sunquist, Adam Ernie, Oli Mata, Jordan Osterle, Lindstrom, there is a lot of moving pieces on this team through next year or 2024 within two years, as we talked about when we did our free agency frenzy show with Cooper Hopkins, even with the Calgary Flames. There's a lot of similarities in between the Flames and the Red Wings in the sense of two years from now, even next year and two years from now, this team is going to look a lot different as far as the salary cap aspect of it so when some of you fans look around and you complain about what was left and why this team didn't completely tank, you're talking about a brand new coaching staff and Derek Lalonde that maybe can change the culture and bring us something that's actually tangible. You're talking about a team that was already in a playoff spot all the way through January, even with all the other misnomers and Jeff Blaschel and behind the bench. Now you're talking about all these other acquisitions that Steve Eisman has brought in finally cleared out some of the calorie, a salary cap space and will continue to do so within the next couple seasons, this could be good. For a team that's already competitive through January, you could be talking about a team that could be competitive through March and April into the playoffs. Do I believe that they're going to make the playoffs? No, I believe that they're just going to miss out. But I do believe they're going to be a hell of a lot better product on the ice than they were. This leaves you to a couple big other questions here. Does Simone Edvinson... The 19-year-old defenseman, the sixth pick in 2021, does he make the squad? With Elmer Soderblom, the center forward combination of 21 years of age, or Jonathan Berggren, the Swedish forward there at center and forward spot at 22 years of age, the third-round pick in 2018, is he going to make the team? 33rd pick, I should say, 22 years of age, 33rd pick in 2018, is he going to make the team? So is Edvinson, Soderblom, or Berggren going to make the team? It's possible. Definitely for Edvinson, especially, even though you have that decor. I mean, that's maybe what Mata 
and Charat and some of these other things are going to be there for to nurse along the progression there of Edmondson. Edmondson's probably going to be the guy with Mort Sider. You're going to have two guys in their 20 years of age going in there, 20 plus, that are going to be your top end beasts that can skate, defend, and score. And that's going to turn you into the same situation that you had there with Victor Hedman or Chernak or Jan Ruda, but now it's Victor Hedman and Mikhail Sergachev for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Edvinson and Moritz Sider are going to be one hell of a combination. And then the back-end prospect pool within three or four years, you have Marco Casper, who you just drafted, number eight pick, 18 years of age center in 2022. Sebastian Kosa, the goalie, the 19-year-old, the 15th pick in 2021 of last year. You have Carter Mazur, again from Detroit. He won the title at uh, University of Denver in college. He was the 70th pick, the 20 years of age forward. William Wallander, the defenseman, 19 years of age, the 32nd pick in 2020. Antti Tomisto. The defenseman, the 19 years of age, 35th pick in 2019. Shai Boonham was also another product of the University of Denver, the 36th pick in 2021. So those are just some of the guys that I've listed that could be on the big team within three to four years. On top of Edvinson, Soderblom, and Berggren, especially Edvinson. Maybe not Soderblom and Berggren. Maybe Soderblom and Berglund could be put on the same situation in the prospect pool that we've mentioned. But the prospect pool that we just mentioned, I definitely believe, will be on the team in three to four years. Soderblom and Berggren may be one to two, and uh, Edvinson may be now to one. So between all the guys that were signed in between Kubalik, Peron, Charat, Mata, Kopp, and now having Derek Lalonde, and mentioning that Steve Eisman has also done yeoman's work and bringing in that prospect pool and having some guys that can already be ready, yes, this team's going to be a lot better. So we're going to leave it to you like this. How does this sound? And then we will close this out and go to the Tigers. So between Bertuzzi, Larkin, Raymond, that'll probably be a projected first line. It's Andrew Kopp with Jacob Verana and David Perron, maybe on your second Pew Suter with Dominic Kubalik and Philip Zadina. Again, RFA. We'll see if Zadina is still going to be on the roster. And then Rasmussen, maybe Adam Ernie because of some of the injuries there. And Sunquist on the fourth line because of the injuries there with Robbie Fabry and uh, Jake Wallman on defense side, which we're going to leave him out because you got Chirot and Sider probably on the first line defense. Again, I don't love Chirot on the top line, but I'm just going to give it to you as it is. Probably be Hironik and Mata on the second line defense with Lundstrom and Osterle because, again, no Wallman on that side of it right now being an IR. And right now your number one goaltender is Ville Huso because Alex Nedeljkovic is not going to be ready to start the year. And right now they have listed as the scratches Joe Valeno, Austin Zarnik, who I'm not familiar with, and then Mark Pizik, who, again, will be on IR as well because he's going through an injury that's going to leave him out for about six months. So between... Larkin, Raymond, and Bertuzzi are not touching that first line, but that second line, my goodness now, with Kopp, Perron, and Verana. You have two lines, people. You have two lines on the Red Wings, so you should celebrate for that. So as we've said with the Red Wings, we talked about it in the Atlantic Division in the East. They finished with 74 points. The Bruins, the Lightning, the Maple Leafs, the Panthers, and the Capitals. So the Bruins and Capitals were the two wildcard teams. And then the Hurricanes, Rangers, and Penguins also made it on the Metropolitan I think the Red Wings will be much more competitive going in between, not just through January like they were. I say going into March and April, and I leave it to you like this, because Dylan Larkin said at the end of the year, we were really disappointed 
and we thought we had a chance in the locker room this year. We thought something was going to happen, and we thought something was going to work out. And it didn't. And now with all these other moves, the new coach and staff, and some of these other pieces going in there, this could be a hell of a lot different, and this could be something a lot more tangible here for the Red Wings, where there is something to work with. So we're going to close it out here with the Tigers, and this is probably going to be something if my voice is still left here throughout this long broadcast, as we've hit an hour 15. I'm pretty impressed with that. So this is a good state of the union between all of that. So this is going to be something that I'm the most... I'm pretty passionate about the Red Wings and the Pistons, but the most passionate about in terms of uh, swearing and ranting because we finally hit the team that has no hope. And the Tigers, that were one of the best well-run organizations in all of sports, are now the worst in the city of Detroit. And I partly blame Chris Illich as much as I blame Al Lavila, because one is clearly enabling the other. So even though you have one of the best managers in all of sports, and look, I, I've said this many times throughout the old sports shows and Sports Day in the D, where now I was just rebranded as Hopeless Sports Guy, and I moved all the stuff over. I wasn't a fan of A.J. Hinch from the very beginning of it because with the cheating scandal and all the stuff going on with the Houston Astros, I was just really just fucking worried about the way that all of that stuff was going to go. Was this team going to continue to do some of these other things on A.J. Hinch's eye? Was it going to be completely changed? I mean, make no mistake about it. The reason why A.J. Hinch is here is because he had to serve his prison sentence because nobody really wanted to touch that situation in that contract. And the Tigers were fortunate to be able to get somebody like A.J. Hinch. And some of these other assholes out there are just going out and saying, well, it's A.J.'s fault too because the team's not winning. Who does he got to put out there? He's got no one. So last year, they finished 77-85 and 85 when they should have been in the basement. Now, the Tigers are in the basement. They are last in the AL Central. They're behind the freaking Kansas City Royals, for freak's sake here. In the sense of, they're 38-58. and 58. They're closing in on the deadline at the end of the week. They're last again in the AL Central. You want to know how bad these fucking numbers are? Let's go through some of them. So, Miguel Cabrera. Let's talk about it. He's 39 years of age. You remember Miguel Cabrera, right? He's still signed here in 2023. It's still two more years of Cabrera. This the rest of this year and all of next. A $31 million cap hit. But I don't even complain at that. You know why? Because Miguel Cabrera is hitting 284. He's got three home runs and 35 RBI, which is second on the team. And he's hitting 284. And he's your best player. And he's 39 years of age. Why is Miguel Cabrera your best player and he's 39? There's no excuse for that. But he's your best player. And he's had a great season. He's very well deserved of that All-Star nomination because every team in baseball has got to have one. Miguel Cabrera was that one along with Gregory Soto. I think they got the two right. But Miguel Cabrera has been the best player on your team because this team has been so bad. So Javier Baez, oh, Javier Baez, what a lovely acquisition we have for the Tigers, right? Oh, he signed a $31 million cap hit all the way through, let's take this further here because I got this wrong, $23.3 million cap hit until 2027 for Mr. Javier Baez, Mr. Gold Glove Defense. Oh, we know about the strikeouts, but we can live with that because it's Javier Baez, right? 218, 9 home runs, 
36 RBIs. Congratulations and a fucking golf clap for you, Mr. Javi Baez. You know why? Because you're leading the team in RBI with 36. You're just behind Miguel Cabrera with 35. Can I tell you how sad that is? That the Tigers' RBI leader has 36, and it's Javier Baez, 36, at a $23 million point three cap hit till 2027. We know about the strikeouts. I can calm down about those. With 80 strikeouts, I understand Javier Baez is feast or famine. But you gotta have more than nine bombs. You gotta hit more than 218. I mean, he's not even that much farther away from the Mendoza line, people. That's the 200 marker, and that's the marker and modicum that they always use with these catchers. And the one thing that you're supposed to say about Javier Baez is this. He's supposed to have that gold glove defense. All the throws, the airs, the range, and all of that, that's not going to happen with Javier Baez because he's going to make every routine play. He's going to make the even the most difficult plays look routine. He is just superb. A, a chef's kiss, if you will, for Mr. Javier Baez. He has been fucking deplorable in the outfield, Javier Baez. Deplorable. It puts me in the situation to where the best double play combination, notwithstanding Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker, who's going to get his time as a retirement there on the wall of Comerica Park in the uh, first week of August, which is well-deserved, but the best double play combination that could have been Scope and Baez the last good double play combination, despite the two best to ever do it, was Ian Kinsler and Jose Iglesias. And Ian Kinsler and Jose Iglesias run fucking laps around Javier Baez and Jonathan Scope. It is absolutely dreadful what Javier Baez has done in Tiger's uniform. And it really makes you wonder this. You know with all those comments, and it came out later, that Carlos Correa... Pretty much said this, I don't want to join an effing rebuilding team. He flat out said that. I don't want to join a rebuilding team. I want to go somewhere I can win. Yeah, the Minnesota Twins. And yeah, they're in first place in the division. He certainly got that one right, and he made everyone else look like fools, as the Chicago White Sox have struggled with a little bit of injury concerns. But that happens sometimes. It's still a three-team race, really, in between the... Twins, the Guardians, and the White Sox again because you can't say Indians anymore. But that's one of those situations. So Baez definitely hasn't filled out, but you couldn't really just throw an extra $30, $40, $50 million to Carlos Correa and get something to dominate. But at the same time, what was Carlos Correa going to give you when the team was playing like this? Hell, I wish they never would have went out to sign Javier Baez. Just left it alone. Zach Short couldn't play much worse, and Zach Short's awful. He's not even a major league player. So, Jonathan Scope, this is those ones that have been uh, incredibly disappointing because Jonathan Scope was magic last year. This 30 years of age, uh, first, second, third baseman, all infield shortstop, uh, 211, six home runs, 25 RBIs, making $7.5 million to 2023. The most disappointing thing here with Jonathan Scope is simply this. He's been so bad, his trade value is completely nothing. Jimmer Candelario, I say this too. He's batting a cool 195, Jamer. Come on down. 195. Seven home runs, 24 RBI, and again, he's a free agent in 2024. And another problem here with Mr. Jimmer Candelario is his trade value is Butkus, and he's a free agent in 2024. Robbie Grossman... Again, you know he was entering his final season, the 32 years of age outfielder. 207 for Robbie. 
Again, we know he draws some walks, but he's also leading the team in strikeouts more than Javier Baez at 85-plus, if you can believe that. But two bombs for Robbie. That's all. That's it, and that's all. 22 RBI, a $5.5 million cap hit. He's going to be a free agent. 25 walks, 85 strikeouts, as we've said. Victor Reyes. Victor Reyes has been good in his limited time. I can't even talk shit about the man. 39 games played, 281. On the batting average, two bombs, 12 RBI, 15 walks, 35 strikeouts. And... Let's make sure that I got this in the correct numbers. Yes, I do. One stolen base, four caught stealing. He does play uh, some strong defense in between that. So I kind of mix that in with Riley Green. Apologize. So 39 games played, 281, one home run, 11 RBI for Adrian, 2025. Team control for Mr. Victor Reyes. Again, I almost skipped one there in Riley Green. Riley Green's been pretty good since coming up from uh, the big club here from the Mud Hens to the Tigers. So 248, two bombs, 12 RBI, 15 walks, 35 strikeouts, one stolen base, four caught stealing. But they said at the opening of it, in between a Raleigh Green's opening car, that he couldn't play much defense. I don't really see how they got that prospect pool uh, acquisition correct because Riley Green looks to be the best defense player on the team. So let's go a little couple steps further here. Willie Castro, 25 years of age, he's versatile, plays all over the field. 248, two bombs, 16 RBI. Uh, and team control to 2026, he's versatile, Harold Castro, 284, four bombs, 20 RBI, team control to 2026, he's an infielder, and Eric Haas rounds it out in the starting spot of the 238, seven home runs, 20 RBI, he's your catcher, and versatile outfielder. So, I want to just mention this really quick, if you happen to pick up on this or not. So, let's go through this, between Cabrera, Baez, Scope, Candelario, Grossman, Green, Reyes, Castro, Castro, Haas, your starters here, I'm not going to give you the name, but let me give you the home run total. 3, 9, 6, 7, 2, 2, 1, 2, 4, 7. And then Austin Meadows, 0 home runs, 11 RBI. Akil Badu, 1 home run, 3 RBI. Are you fucking telling me, and I mean this wholeheartedly, are you telling me there is no one on the Tigers that have hit double-digit home runs yet, and there is no one on the Tigers that averaged more than 36 RBI on the season? You're telling me in between the late 90s and the early 2000s when the Tigers had lost a dreadful 119 games when you were on the tail end of the Travis Fryman Bobby Higginson, uh, Tony Clark days, that that team in the, between the early, the late 90s and the early 2000s, that team is a better offensive squad than this Tigers team with Baez, Scope, Candelario, Riley Green, Spencer Torkelson, and Austin Meadows. That's what you're telling me right now. That is completely atrocious. That is completely unacceptable. That is toaster bathtub level. And that is a level of Russian roulette with the revolver and one bullet inside with a gun to your mouth. And as entertaining as a car crash. That is what the Tigers have been right now. And I can't believe that is a situation that this Tigers team has faced itself. So as we talked about Austin Meadows, he's battled some of the vertigo issues and some of the other spontaneity 
of injury issues here. It was 36 games played, no bombs, 11 RBIs, we've said. Isak Paredes, who was one of the guys that they traded for, thankfully for Tigers fans, he's cooled down of late. 52 games played for the Rays, a 222 batting average with 13 bombs and 28 RBI. So, yes, he would be the home run leader for the Tigers right now with 18 walks. So he's cooled off considerably after winning Player of the Week, Player of the Month accolades. Isak Paredes has kind of fallen back to earth a little bit after getting some time. And Akil Badu, who unfortunately was one of the best players and one of the better Rule 5 picks that we've had, it seems like he's been figured out. He's played just 24 games this year. He's batting a abysmal buck 25 with one home run and three RBI. He's not been relevant at all since being the team's arguably best player last year. I still have some hope for Akil as he's 23 years of age. May he not ever be one of the uh, preeminent center field spots. Again, I believe that's going to fall to Riley Green. But point being, he's still got speed, he can play a corner outfield, and he's got to find a way to get out of these doldrums and improve that bet. Because, because as bad as this Tigers team has been, Akil Badu has been counted on to be one of the team's better players, alongside Javier Baez, or Robbie Grossman, or Jonathan Scope. He's got to find a way, because there's nobody else in this prospect pool that's going to be able to save them there. Do you think fucking Cody Clemens is going to come in there and save this team? No. There's nobody coming to save this team. Even with the seven and a half years of work that Al Avila's put in, all he's really kind of done is scratched his ass without changing his drawers. There's nobody else coming to save this team right now. And because of that, they need Meadows, Badu, Baez, Grossman, Scope, Candelario, to figure it out, because if they don't, this is just going to continue to get a lot worse. But why has it still gotten so bad? It isn't just because of the offense. So Tarek Skubal, he's really been the only pitcher right now that's been able to log over 100 innings on the entire pitching staff. 106.2 right now at a 388 ERA. Again, some of his starts of late have gotten a little worse. Again, maybe getting a little bit tired. Maybe just dealing with some of the crap that's around him. He struggled a little bit of late. But still, Tarek Skubal has proven that he's the best pitcher on your team right now. Both Casey Mize and Matt Manning. You can talk about the same thing in between Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, Jackson Job. Again, is one of the guys out of high school that you just drafted within the last couple of years. He's not going to be ready for another four or five years. The point being is this. Some of these, some of these guys, some of these teams, they've missed some time within covid some of these other things like that, some diminished camps, some some of the stuff with the lockout that screwed all that over. That's probably uh, affected Mize, Manning, Scooble, and Torkelson the most. But what's really hurt them is not even being available. The development time that's been missed over the last two and a half years for Mize, Manning, Scooble, Torkelson, and all of that has been devastating here for the Tigers. Between Mize, Manning, and Scooble... These are the guys right now, even at the Tigers, as we talk about with their record being as bad as it is, even with the record being as bad, you want the development time for these guys to be able to be thrown in right now. And if you're not getting that development time, then what are you really getting? You're just getting a team that's toilet water right now. They are just porta potty water right now. And it's not good. 
If you're not getting the development time and this team is bad and it seems like everyone else is regressing, then you're getting nothing. You're getting themselves into a situation. And oh, by the way, we have to throw this out there as well. No longer is it just like it was in the NFL where the worst team gets the worst pick. At the worst time, the commissioner has thrown out Rob Manfred a draft lottery. So if the Tigers couldn't get fucked anymore, they've got fucked hard with no lube and no condom in the sense of now they're in a draft lottery, this team needs a number one pick in the worst way. And you can say, John, why do they need more number one picks when they've already got that in between Mize and Torkelson? They need that because they got a complete inept clown in the business drafting for them. So if they didn't have all that stuff with the complete futility, they wouldn't need all these picks. In fact, between seven and a half years, you would expect your prospect pool to include more than your first round picks. Then again, your dog or cat or any other forest animal could have gone ahead and drafted mice and Torkelson because everyone else said they were generational talents. Geez, that was an easy button. I mean, geez, when you think about it, Matt Millen drafted Calvin Johnson, as we talk about in the open for the Lions. It really wasn't that difficult. So Al Lavila really hasn't done anything to prove that he's really damn good at his job. So Eduardo Rodriguez, another signing that hasn't worked out like Javier Baez. Again, I'm not going to diminish the returns of the sense that he struggled in terms of the fact that it was just a few shards, a few times shards, and it is kind of some shards there for Al Lavila, but a few uh, opportunities there for pitching and a few starts, I should say, for Eduardo Rodriguez where... Look, he's got shelled in the first few times for Eduardo Rodriguez, but after the first three, four starts, where's Eduardo Rodriguez been? Not only has he battled some issues, he's also been battling some ongoing marital issues. That has pretty much rendered him unable to pitch a baseball when he was one of those guys that, to be fair, and I'll throw it out there, it's not to be expected that Mize, Manning, and Scooble, even if healthy, even if all were healthy at the time, where Eduardo Rodriguez or Mize Manning and Scooble would have had to have been a number one starter. Even if Alvila, let's say, in a perfect world, was doing everything well. Eduardo Rodriguez now is expected to be an ace of a staff, and essentially where he's at this point, where, again, I hate to bring this to you, Tigers fans, he's been more of a Jared Washburn, one of the situations and one of the rare picks that uh, Dave Dombrowski at the time had gotten wrong. But I'll take this a few other steps further into purgatory status where he's been the haunted visions of the Jordan Zimmerman level at the $15.4 million cap hit that Eduardo Rodriguez brings to you. Remember Jordan Zimmerman in the opening year where he had a fantastic April and then just submerged and got destroyed there by the torpedoes as he was on the water and it was never heard from again. That's where Eduardo Rodriguez is panning out to be right now, if this continues. It has been a complete, utter disaster. So, the other issue is this, and Al Avila might bitch about it, and again, he's got a little bit of a point here that even I can say this. Jose Cisnero and Kyle Funkhauser have not been available at all, and if you look at it going into last year, those are two of the better Pitching prospects, and I shouldn't say prospects, but one of those pitching spots that you can throw in there with Gregory Soto that are giving you some hope that when you got into the back end of the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth innings, you have something to work with. 
But when you have two of your best bullpen arms not being available, when you have a situation where, yes, Michael Fulmer has adapted into a good bullpen arm when he was one of the better starters and one rookie of the year as far as a starting prospect, his arm has got blown out to the point where he can only pitch in the bullpen. And again, Alavila wasn't able to get anything for him at the time, even when they won. You can say, let's not argue about trading somebody like that, because why would you? You won Rookie of the Year. We'll look at where he is right now. But you're at the point where I bring it to you like this. Fulmer, Jimenez, and Soto are the only ones left in the bullpen that are coming and saving the ass of any kind of starter that's gone in there and trying to uh, live it up. And look, it's not fair for Garrett Hill or for um, Rodriguez to not be there or for some of these other guys, uh, Franklin Rodriguez, some of these other guys to go ahead and start because there's been so many injuries. I understand that, but it's also on Al Davila and Chris Illich to stop enabling the bullshit because between seven and a half years, this prospect pool has to have been so much better everybody's going to deal with injuries i understand starter after starter and even guys in the in the rotation even guys in the batting lineup when you get to so many injuries at that point there's nothing much more you can do but there's been no kind of backup plan here for the tigers when things have gone wrong and it's left you between fulmer jimenez and soda to be able to clean up the mess and it's not fair for all of them to do and let's take this a couple steps further here so when you talk about Fulmer, Jimenez, and Soto, you're, talk you're talking about three guys within the next week that probably have the only level of trade value left. That's it. They're all your bullpen pieces. Now, should Al Avila get the opportunity to be able to trade one Michael Fulmer, Joe Jimenez, or Gregory Soto? Probably not. But you're also at the point where you don't want to get rid of uh, Fulmer and Jimenez for nothing. But you say, John, it's probably better to keep these guys rather than Al Avila to trade them because essentially every time he trades somebody, he gets nothing for the trade. And touche, I'll give you credit for that. But Gregory Soto, he's probably the one guy, again, he's under team control for a few more years, but the two-time back-to-back all-star, whether or not you think he's perceived to be that because he can walk everybody under the sun but also strike out on everybody under the sun, I do think Gregory Soto is very, very good, and I do think he's one of those guys that gets shit on unfairly, but he's probably the guy that'll give you the most return for anyone left on the Tigers team. But do you trust Alavilla to make that move? I sure as fuck don't. And when you think about some of the other prospects for the Tigers have for hitting, well, it's Cody Clemens and nothing else. LOL. That's not going to happen. And Spencer Torkelson was just sent down. And look, if you follow some of that stuff on ESPN Plus with the captain and Derek Jeter, you can even understand, and again, I'm not comparing Spencer Torkelson to one of the best ever to do it, and Derek Jeter and the captain. But my point being is this, and Derek Jeter has said this to you as well, it was easy to struggle in the first year of wanting to go back home and wondering if you can actually do this and making errors and Torkelson hasn't done that. He's been great with the glove, but he's been not so good at the plate. And he's one of those guys out of the Arizona State, just like uh, when you're thinking about all of that. He's been really, really good, and he was one of the best college hitters to come out of the draft ever. That was his comparisons, as they talked about. But you can't expect somebody like that, even though he was called up immediately in the year. You want to know why he was called up immediately in the year when baseball usually waits three, four, five years? It's because they don't fucking have anybody. 
That's why Spencer Torkelson was thrust into duty. You want to know why Riley Green didn't make the team right away? It's because he really hurt his leg and he wasn't able to make the team right away. There was no battle plans if Torkelson and Green weren't able to get all of their prospects and all of their stuff figured out and be able to have success in the first year. And there was no battle plans because Al Avila has no idea what he's doing. And what is he going to do next year? Take the 19-year-old Jackson Job at that point and expect him to be ready and be an ace of a staff? No. It's going to take him another four or five years. Everybody bitched about taking a high school a pitcher right out of the draft, and I really believe, honestly, that's probably one of the things that Al Avila had gotten right. That was one of the things that you had to be able to do that because he's one of those guys that I can stash away to make sure everybody knows that they don't think I'm a complete abject failure, even though everybody already knows that. So again, since 2015, since Alavila's taken over from Dave Dombrowski, you've gone from players like Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Anibal Sanchez, Rick, Porcel Rick Porcello, Doug Fister, and David Price in the rotation. Again, with Brad Ausmus, let me make to this point, you had Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, and David Price going against the Baltimore, Uri Baltimore Orioles, and that was just several years ago. Verlander, Scherzer, Price, back to back to back, Cy Young winners in a row, starting against the Baltimore Orioles. And you want to know what happened to the Tigers in a five-game series? They got fucking swept three games to nothing, even with that talent. And that goes and shows you just how much of an abject failure Brad Ausmus was. Because then Brad Ausmus also gets to go to be the uh, head coach, the skipper, if you will, for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim here, if you want to go through the long name, in between Mike Trout and Justin Upton, players like that, and they finished last. So now Brad Ausmus has been relegated to be the bench coach, assistant coach of uh, one Mark Kotze of the Oakland Athletics. That's how far he's fallen. But let's take this another step further as far as some uh, batting order players. So guys like J.D. Martinez, Carlos Guillen, Magalero Adonias, Austin Jackson, Prince Fielder, Justin Upton, Yoenis Cespedes. Did Alavila, and again I know some of that combination was Dave Dombrowski at the time, but did Alavila get anything for Upton, Cespedes, J.D. Martinez? No. He got nothing for any of those guys. And he sure as hell got nothing for Justin Verlander. Because when you talk about Justin Verlander, do you remember what the Verlander trade was? I sure do. It was Jake Rogers, who's been injured and has been nothing more than a backup catcher at most when he's been here. It was Franklin Perez, an injured pitcher who will never play again. And it was Daz Cameron, an outfielder who can't even crack the rotation. For David Price, it was Matthew Boyd and Daniel Norris. Daniel Norris, who was no longer on the team and who I believe is on the Chicago Cubs. And Matthew Boyd, who has been nothing more than a fifth starter at best. And the reason why he was a Tigers ace, and let's remember this, folks, the reason why he was a Tigers ace was because Matthew Boyd was all that was left to pitch. So that's all they got for players like that. And again... Rodgers, Cameron, and the injured Franklin Perez was all you got for Justin Verlander, who's going to be in the fucking Hall of Fame, and could probably retire because he won a World Series there with the Houston Astros, and the Hall of Fame as an Astro, 
just to slight the city of Detroit if he wants to. Again, he's not the type of guy, Justin Verlander, to do that, but that's the situation that you're in. So with everything that I've thrown to you here for the Tigers, I hope you understand that officially now the Tigers have gotten the official prize, the, the one that you don't want, as the worst run organization in all of pro sports in Detroit. Al Avila's got to go. And there should be a bullet in this proverbial job and dragged out like old yeller by the trade deadline by the end of the month. He should not get the opportunity to move on from Soto or Fulmer or Joe Jimenez. He's got to go right now. Even if the Tigers were this bad as they are right now, last place in the AL Central, my complete argument to not get away from complete abject failure is that the farm system should at least be loaded. And yes, you might go through one of those situations where some of your moves between Eduardo Rodriguez and Javier Baez don't work out. That can happen. But this Detroit Tigers team is not only... They're, they're playing worse than the Toledo Mudhens. They're playing like the Erie Sea Wolves. And yes, that is the double-A affiliate of the Tigers. They're playing like the double-A Erie Sea Wolves. They're not playing like the Toledo Mudhens. There are no prospects. There's nothing coming to save this dumpster fire. And for Al Avila to come out and say that he feels that his job security is completely... Uh, it's not on the fence. And, oh, I've had several GM jobs before. I just happened to take the Tigers job. How fucking stupid do you think these Tigers fans are? For everyone that wants to put your head on a pike, I don't blame them right now. And completely, I'm not going to sit there and talk about the inside information about what a lot of us believe that we know and don't know about Chris Illich. We sure as hell know he's not the same situation that his father could be guilty of making some big moves. But at the same time, when the Tigers had won the Central Division, they made a couple World Series between 06 and 2012. They didn't get the ultimate prize, but during all that time, the Tigers were certainly a very entertaining baseball team. And they gave people some great and wonderful memories. This Tigers team is providing nothing but pain, and the seven and a half years of Al Avila have got to go. And you've got to put that pressure and a lot of that blame on Chris Illich too, because he's enabling all the bullshit to be happening. And look, let's talk about A.J. Hinch for a minute. He's got just one more year on his contract if he chooses to, and then he's done. He's served his sentence for the Detroit Tigers. So A.J. Hinch could very well be saying goodbye after the 2023 seasons. It's already been a couple of years of him serving his prison sentence. And if, I, if I'm A.J. Hinch, I'm doing this, I'm waving the hand, I'm going, see ya, I'm out. Bye. It's over. I mean, if I'm A.J., what's to stop me not from going to, again, I, know there's, I understand they got Alex Cora back on the uh, Red Sox. He was one of the other ones that was left from the Astros scandal. But that's it. I mean, what's to stop him from going back to the, the Yankees or the Astros if uh, Dusty Baker decides to hang it up or the Padres or some of these other teams like that? Hell, I mean, you can go back in the division there. You could replace uh, Tony La Russa and there with the White Sox or go with the Cleveland Guardians if Francona wants to be done with all that. You want to go back in the division. My point being is this. Toronto Blue Jays or any of these other teams aside, what's going to stop A.J. Hinch from going to one of those teams? I really don't believe any of the stuff that's going on in between the Tigers right now is wholeheartedly AJ's fault. It's not. 
as much as some of these other fans want to go out there and say it's JJ's fault, and you got to be able to change some of these things, what the fuck is he going to do when you go out there and you look and see this is what's going to be left on the roster? And you're really going to blame AJ for that? I mean, you guys need a head examination if that's really what you believe. This team is going nowhere fast. And again, I understand the future years of the Tigers are going to be lean. And it's going to be just as bad. But when we talked about the Lions and the Pistons and the Red Wings, even though there's still some years to be talked about, and we talked about all that stuff between my friends when I worked at the Oakland Press, and I understand I got some futility and cerebral palsy and things like that. My job prospects aren't great. And if it wasn't for, you know, family and things like that, I'd be living on the street. But in any other terms of an evaluation of a job after seven and a half years, if anything has been as poor as El Avila is, and if anything has been as poor as any other kind of lurk, his ass would have been long gone already. And it's time for Chris Illich to take the wool out under his eyes, because I understand he's not a hands-on guy and he's going to do whatever he wants to do. And he wants to do his own thing. And in between all these other stories that we figured out, Mike could, it could very well be uh, some bad stuff. But even he's got to understand that this situation is not going to get better unless some changes are made. And that's why I give the moniker for the Tigers to be the worst run major pro sports organization in all of Detroit sports. Even though the Lions, the Pistons, and the Red Wings are still working their way through, they've got some hope. The Tigers do not. So that's going to be me closing out the show of the State of the Union of the Detroit sports. I hope you enjoyed some of my thoughts in between the Lions, the Pistons, the Red Wings, and the Tigers. I hope we've kept it as real as possible. Now to close all of this, I want to uh, reiterate some of these other things. So let's talk about scheduling here really quickly, and then we'll close out the show completely. So in between the Blood Feud project, between the rivalry of E60, of the Colorado Avalanche and the Detroit Red Wings, I got that in within last week. And then we had the complete hockey breakdown. And again, if I can get a hold of Cooper Hopkins again, maybe he can share some thoughts on Matthew Kuchuk to the uh, Florida Panthers in exchange for, which I can't believe, Jonathan Huberdeau, uh, Mackenzie Weger in a first round that could very be, be a top 10 protected going into 2025. So between the Colorado Avalanche stuff, between the, the Red Wings and the uh, Colorado Avalanche blood feud and the hockey stuff, those were two big projects. And this tapped a three of three for the State of the Union and Detroit sports that I like to hit and uh, once a year. So after these three big projects are done and everything goes up on Spotify, where does that leave me for the rest of my normal routine? So in between baseball season right now, I should be able to get a game a week as well and still be able to get some of that stuff on ColorCast. Again, hopefully some of the other write-ups that I haven't done here for the Tigers, some of the big-time stuff for the State of the Union Detroit Sports and going to the trade deadline will leave into some of that and alleviate that because there's only so many times I can write about so many losses and not get any views on that in terms of whether it's worth time and prospects of it. So what's going to end up happening is this. In terms of the broadcasting and game front, I'll leave it to you twofold. So NBA 2K23 comes out in September. So I ended up getting the championship edition, not to say to throw money away because it's 150 bucks, where you can get uh, both the next-gen and the previous-gen copy. But the championship edition also gives you NBA League Pass. So in turn, NBA League Pass is usually about, you know, close to $120, $130. You figure with 150 bucks, you get both games, you get a lot of extras and League Pass. This can lead me to get uh, at least a game a week here for 
the NBA season when you're going into October. And then at least a game a week with the ESPN Plus where I'll definitely be able to reconnect with Cooper Hopkins where I can join in on some flame game, Flames games doing the color when I can do some play-by-play stuff as well as we can reverse roles as we did going into the Cup Finals and all that, this in, the, in between. So that leaves me to say there'll be some extended... Uh, Basketball coverage, some hockey coverage in October, and probably some uh, game coverage maybe once a week here for the Tigers. Again, I don't have any uh, extra innings kind of passed there for MLB, but I will have the NHL stuff for ESPN Plus, and I will have NBA League Pass for October. So that stuff's going to be done. So after the first couple-week grind of getting your players good in 2K23, then that's going to lead me to my last passion project in NHL 23. So now I'll leave it to you like this. With NHL now being cross-gen, I understand and we can have a whole different level of uh, conversation as far as NHL and gaming and all that stuff not being where it used to be. But now with at least cross-gen for a uh, Xbox release being Xbox One and Xbox Series consoles and PS4 to PS5, you finally get that cross-gen, should open up with some more players. So between that aspect of trying to get busy on NBA 2K, trying to get uh, groups and everything else back together in a uh, club set together here for NHL, and then getting some coverage and game coverage here for some NBA and NHL coverage where I'll be joined by Cooper Hopkins, and hopefully maybe we, Cooper Hopkins and I can try to maybe join in on some other sports as well, if it isn't just uh, hockey that he wants to cover. It'll be busy and it'll be back to regularly scheduled programming. So after these couple of weekends that I'll be pretty busy, when we get into the second week of August, we're going to get back into regularly scheduled programming. We're going to be doing some play-by-play and getting some shows. So again, I hope you enjoyed the previous Passion Projects where we did the blood feud between the Colorado Avalanche and the Red Wings. We did the NHL Free Agency Spectacular and Frenzy with Cooper Hopkins, and then we finished it off with the State of the Union and Detroit Sports. I appreciate it, guys. I appreciated the ones that moved in and out throughout the broadcast. This is going to be up on Spotify soon. I appreciate it, guys, as always, and I will catch up with you very soon. Peace out, guys. Have a good one.